Hello and welcome back to the I Want Her Job podcast. Today we are so excited to continue our Ladies Leading in Technology series with Jocelyn Goldfein. Jocelyn is currently an angel investor and advisor for technology companies. And Jocelyn's career path has been extraordinary. She was an engineering leader at VMware for seven years while the company grew headcount from 350 to 10,000. And then she was an engineering director at Facebook leading updates to something you probably use every day, the Facebook newsfeed, photos, search, and questions. Jocelyn believes in supporting women in technology, a topic we are going to explore in today's show. So let's get started. Jocelyn, so happy to have you with us. Can we start with an overview of your current job as an investor and a summary of how you ended up here with some background on your previous job? Um, sure. I left uh, I left Facebook a little bit over a year ago, and I've been angel investing more or less full-time since then. Um, I've made about 14 investments in about 14 months, so uh, although that, that makes it all sound a lot more smooth, it's, it's been more lumpy than that. Um, and you know, it's all over the map. I, uh, I meet all kinds of different companies. Um, I get to sort of hear about exciting new ideas that, that people have to tackle real problems. And, um, and when I really click with a team and, and believe in a, a space and a product, then, um, then I get to, to really be involved and, and put some of my own skin in the game in, in terms of some of my time and some of my money to, to help out. So, um, really I feel like I have the best job on earth. Wow. And, uh, so when did you make the leap to, I mean, you have an amazing background and if you wanted to give us a, a little summary of your career, which is phenomenal, um, I'd love to hear it. And then tell us how you decided to become a full-time investor, because I think that's what you are now. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, uh, well, I, I graduated from Stanford in the 90s with a computer science degree. I, I worked as a software engineer at a couple places and I, I co-founded a startup in the year 2000. And then um, I had the good fortune of joining VMware really early when it was about 300 employees. And um, I joined as the leader of a small device virtualization engineering team. And the company just um, grew like crazy. We doubled headcount and revenue every year for the next five years in a row. Um, at the end of my seven years at VMware in 2010, the company was more than 10,000 employees, more than $2 billion in revenue. It was 20-fold growth. Um, and I had personally grown more than 20-fold. I was the, the vice president of engineering um, for desktop and, um, and had just had an amazing uh, set of experiences in which I was growing all the time. And um, at that point, the company had become large, and I decided I wanted um, something smaller. And I was also interested, after spending so much of my career on the enterprise side, I was interested in hitting consumer. Um, and so I, uh, in 2010, left uh, VMware and joined Facebook, where I spent four years building products like Newsfeed and Photos and, and working on mobile uh, transition. And um, and that was phenomenal, too. And Facebook was already, obviously, really successful in 2010. But uh, but at the four years I spent at Facebook, Facebook just about tripled in revenue, headcount, but most importantly, users. And so um, that was just like a really great run where I was learning all the time and there was sort of something new and sort of in any given moment, my job was, you know, in any given year, my job had twice as many unknowns as it had knowns. It was sort of totally different than the job I'd been doing the year before. And so um, I kind of got addicted to that vertical learning curve to sort of feeling like there was always um, new stuff to learn, uh, new things to do. And so in, uh, last, in the summer of 2014, um, I thought, you know, the way to keep that going would really be to explore a career that was completely new to me, and that's investing and sort of take what I know about 
uh, building products and building teams and apply it to helping a lot of startups achieve the kinds of things that I've been lucky enough to achieve at the companies I've worked for. Wow. And I can see that these companies, uh, with your track record, will probably triple and quadruple. No, that's so interesting. I love how you started with how you feel like you have the luckiest job. And I mean, that's ultimately where we all want to be. Can you tell us a couple more reasons why? What's the best parts and why do you love it so much? Um, well, I just think there's constant exposure to people who are idealistic and determined and persistent. You know, and I and I think startups require this this contradiction. You have to believe in the impossible that that's going to be possible, or you would be too intimidated to ever get started. But at the same time, you have to be really grounded and really practical and really persist through things going wrong. You can't have your head in the clouds, or you won't actually make it there. And so, you know, those two extremes, you know, fitting them into into one team in one place, that. Um, you know, I think there's tremendous energy from that. Um, and then I think I'm just, I'm learning all the time. As an angel investor, you know, I can't dwell on just sort of one little area. Once I invest in a company, I don't want to invest in its competitors. And, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting on Sand Hill Road with every startup in the world trooping to my door. I'm out, you know, meeting people. Um, and and so, um, you know, because I've worked at, at Facebook and VMware, luckily a lot of startups that are in enterprise or consumer software are interested in meeting me and, and talking to me. Um, but I really see people working on things all over the map from security to network infrastructure to marketplaces to, you know, um, baby wearables. I mean, it's really um, could be anything. And so um, and so that variety is also really phenomenal because I'm constantly having to learn. I'm constantly having to sort of investigate, you know, new areas, new spaces, new value propositions, new technologies. Um just to kind of be able to assess whether I'm going to be able to help somebody. Yeah, that makes sense. So curious, when did you decide you were going to study computer science? And I know you studied at Stanford. And did you know this is where your life was going to take you? Did you already have that um, vision? You know, I did not. I mean, I was always a really nerdy kid. Um, you know, I played, you know, video games. And uh, this is really going to date me. Um, Dungeons and Dragons. So <laughs> it's a whole geek. But I didn't actually learn to really program. I mean, you know, you get a little bit of exposure to, you know, logo and, and, and basic. And, you know, I wouldn't consider that real programming. Um, but I hadn't taken AP computer science in high school. And, and when I went to college, computer science was on my list of things to try. Um, I was always sort of a well-rounded, you know, academically strong. And, and I had this ambition to to challenge myself and to do something that was really hard. And, and computer science was sort of the thing that I thought, well, that might be too hard for me, but I might be able to do it. Like, you know, that's like the hardest thing that I might possibly be able to pull off. My other interests were things like sociology and linguistics and philosophy. Um, so if it hadn't been CS, it really might not have been STEM at all. Mm-hmm. But I thought, well, um, well, CS is going to take, it's a lot of units. And um, so I better sort of rule that one in or out right away. And so I took, I went to Stanford and I took CS 106A fall quarter of my freshman year. And, um, and that class was taught by Eric Roberts and it was an amazing class. It made CS come alive. And I had the experience of, I am good at this and this is fun and it's hard, but it's like the kind of difficult material that when you master it, you feel great. And so, um, and so that was, um, I thought, well, maybe I can do this. And so I took the next class in the sequence and after that, you know, I was hooked. I knew that was it for me. And I still didn't know what I wanted to be or do with my life, but I knew that was what I was majoring in. Um, 
And then, um, and then I started my career as a software engineer, again, actually with a lot of uncertainty, um, whether that was what I wanted to do or not. I'd had some internships at company, well, I'd had two internships at Netscape. Um, and I wasn't totally sure that I would want to be a software engineer forever, but I wasn't sure what else I would want to do. And I thought, um, you know, going to graduate school is for people who are certain, and I'm not certain. And, um, you know, and, and in term, I mean, going, getting a PhD would be for somebody who is certain. And getting a master's is just going to postpone figuring it out for another year. I'm not going to figure out something in a co-term program that I didn't figure out in undergrad. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, the only way to figure out what I want to do is to just start doing it. So, um, so I started work as a software engineer. And then really <clears throat> in building pro- the, the things that you get out of a career in software engineering that you don't get from your study of computer science is, um, you know, even, even in, in classes with group assignments, like it's fundamentally solo. Like homework is all about individual learning and individual assessment. But on the job, your goal is to, pr- to build something and you build it as a team. And so that teamwork element had not been there. And that creative, that creation of something, like not just turning in a homework assignment, but really creating something new, that was not there. And so I, I loved both those things. And so those made me realize that, um, that actually software engineering was a phenomenal, you know, place that I was going to enjoy spending my time. And then sort of later on, it was natural to gravitate into managing engineering teams because um, really those same motivations that I felt like I could make the team whole sort of greater than the sum of the parts um, by, um, with my contribution. Yeah. And I know that you're supportive of um, more women in technology. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us about the type of work or, um, things that you're doing in that area and what do you think the world would look like if we did double the amount of women entering careers in software engineering and more technology type higher roles in leadership in technology yeah. companies um, so I think there are two really fundamental problems and I you know it's, and, and, and people debate which one of them is the real problem and I just like that's like debating nature versus nature it's obviously both yeah. all right so we have very few women in software engineering roles in technical roles product management design all of it and, um, and, 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 there, and that is a pipeline problem, all right? We don't have, you know, computer science programs are producing something like 15% women. And so we cannot um, hire women who don't exist. You know, Hollywood has barely women, any women in director roles. They do not have a pipeline problem. There is no shortage of women directors who would love to make movies, and they just aren't getting hired and they aren't getting funded. We do not have, like, you know, an army of women who'd like to be engineers who are... Who are We've got hiring discrimination against. That is not our situation. So we absolutely need to solve the pipeline problem by um, making it really more clear and more obvious what this career is all about. I mean, I honestly, the fact that I was majoring in computer science, I'd had multiple internships, but even to me, it was not totally clear that being a software engineer was all about teamwork and creativity You know, until I was a year into the job. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you know, my eight-year-old knows that now because her dad and I have told her. But, you know, I think most eight-year-olds don't know that. So I think that that's like um, a perception of software engineering that we've just got to change. And we've got to change sort of access to the the education. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so um, a couple of the things I'm doing about that, um, part of it is just to attempt to be a role model, to show um, kids that there are women in these roles. Mm -hmm. I also sit on the board of an organization called She++, which is a Stanford student-led organization that is really working on shattering these stereotypes and that has a bunch of phenomenal programs to engage and support high school students in in studying computer science. Mm -hmm. So that's the pipeline. Now, there is also a very real problem in the environment. When you have an environment, and you can sort of, you know, argue about which came first, the chicken or the egg, but the fact is, once you progress into a career in software engineering, you're working in an environment that's 80 or 90% male. Um, And in a male-dominated environment like that, um, you get what I will call these sort of, you know, micro-inequities, right? Like, you will feel out of place. You will have these minority experiences where people assume that you are not a software engineer. Um, it's very obvious that the more feminine you, the more femininely you come across or are perceived, like, the more that's a knock on your technical credibility. And if you want to be perceived as technically credible, one of the ways to do it is to behave in ways that are more masculine. Um, you know, that's, that's not like an awesome or friendly environment. I happen to believe that raising the numbers of women would help with that a lot. You know, if women were 30% of the engineers instead of 15%, um, you know, I feel like there would be kind of a tipping point where, you know, if you're a woman, you're not as presumptively Mm non-technical. Um, but I think that there also really, um, are a few people whose attitudes need to change. I don't want to say this industry has no sexists. I think the society has sexists in it, and our, our industry does too. But I don't think that that's the predominant problem. I think most people in the tech industry are, you know, are, are, are fabulous to work with, are not misogynists, um, you know, would love to have more women to work with. But, but there are sort of patterns and habits and, and mindsets that have just gotten kind of locked in, ways of communicating um, that just need to change and that just need women being sort of vocal and present um, and pushing to change them. Yeah, and too, I think that men, male out, like this environment is mostly men, and so male allies pushing to make those changes uh, is also, you know, going to be required for for it to be better. And um, and I also think that um, being really conscious about how we're because we have these stereotypes where we see women as a little less technical, you know, we might underestimate the impact a woman is having on a team. We may bring her career along a little more slowly. I think there particularly needs to be a lot of concentration on not taking for granted the career development of women um, and really leaning into that. And so um, there are, you know, as a, as a leader at, at VMware and at Facebook, I was able to um, be a part of, of sort of how we talk inside the management teams of doing career development for all our engineers, not just for women. And, and the thing is, the more formal and explicit you are about those things, then, then um, you know, the informal stuff tends to, to leave behind people who are, you know, who are the minority or who violate our stereotypes. And the, the more you make those things formal and explicit, um, you know, the, the more everybody benefits, but minorities in particular can benefit. Um, and so I'm now in a position, although I'm no longer running an engineering organization, um, you know, um, engineering leaders at, at software companies throughout the Valley are people that I've, I've worked with and, and mentored, um, and, and over the years. And so, um, I'm, I'm just often, you know, very quietly through, you know, my contacts through coffee and, and lunch and, and just sort of, you know, giving advice to, to people who are struggling with the situation. Um, I think I'm able to have a little impact on how Valley companies are thinking about this. No, I'm sure you do. And I think that's a really good point about the team, the perception problem, how it's all about, there's so much teamwork and creativity and, and women probably from the outside just don't understand what's going to happen in those roles. So I'm mm-hmm. curious if you had a wish list of like, you know, 
let's say three things that you could change um, on a really broad scale. Let's say it's in education or in our society or culture that yeah. would allow, what would it, what would they be? Can you think of any offhand? Um, like really tractable things, right? Yeah. Not yeah. See, everybody wakes up and recognizes. <laughs> yeah. Not the. Um, not really. Okay. So I think that if you made CS education um, universal in like middle school, high school, just, you know, I mean, absolutely every high school teaches biology, teaches physics. I think computer science is just as useful to, you know, a well-rounded, educated adult mm -hmm. and, and programming concepts. So I think um, putting it in front of everybody, I think, shatters a lot of stereotypes. You think, oh, this is going to be too mathy. This is going to be too hard. It is. Um, it's not. I mean, if you can learn algebra, which you learn in middle school, mm -hmm. um, you can learn programming. Um, and so I think that just sort of demystifying it. And I think also when everybody does it, then you're not like the only girl in AP computer science. So that is, uh, and then I think that gives tons of women and other minorities the opportunity to realize what I realized, right? Which is, oh, I was intimidated of this. I thought it was hard and challenging, but like, actually it's fun and I'm good at it. And, and, you know, how else do you have that, that realization? I can't count the number of times, you know, I've had the conversation with a woman who's a senior in college, she's majoring in bio or something. She put off and put off, you know, the distribution requirement that CS satisfies. She finally takes a CS class her junior, her senior year, discovers she loves it, wow. and it's too late. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I think just making that access to everyone early would be phenomenal. And listen, not everybody's going to love it. Not everybody's going to become a software engineer. But I think technical literacy is invaluable. I think everybody in every job category, if you're a journalist, if you're a biologist, if you're a novelist, is going to benefit from knowing a little programming and a little computational thinking. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, so I think that would be one change. That would be great. Um, on the career development front, you know, something that is very common in Silicon Valley is that our managers are homegrown because we want managers who really understand the technology and the code base. And it's not portable knowledge from, you know, somebody can't come in from another company with that knowledge. And so very often managers have in tech companies have become a manager on the job at that company, have relatively shallow management experience. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're sort of all inventing how to be, and they're growing quickly and the, you know, they're all sort of, it's the blind leading the blind, frankly, on people management. And, um, and we haven't really innovated in how we do people management in, in decades, like the same old, you know, annual performance reviews and feedback and performance-based ratings and bonuses. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's all the same. And I think that um, we don't challenge, and in particular what I've seen at company after company is that managers think about how to take an entry-level person, you know, a new grad, and bring them up from sort of apprentice to journeyman and from journeyman to master. And then once you sort of reach that mid-career software engineer level, everybody sort of shrugs and gives up and stops trying to develop your career. It's like, oh, well, if you're destined to become, you know, a guru – you know, that's in your DNA and you'll get there yourself. And if you don't get there yourself, you obviously didn't have it in you. And I think that's just backwards. And I think in many cases it's because the managers themselves never proceeded any further than the mid-level as engineers before they became managers. So they don't really know. And so I think if we could really, um, first of all, develop the conviction that it is possible to grow someone from mid-level to guru level, just like it was possible to grow from junior to mid, um, and then really consciously do that on behalf of all our engineers. And I think, um, and, you know, and I think the heart of it is project selection. The heart of it is putting people on projects that are just a little too big for them. That's how you grow. And we just stop, um, we just stop doing that at some point, taking that chance. And so um, I think that if managers 
were holistically coming up with development plans that were putting steadily harder and harder work um, and continuing to grow people past the mid-level for every member of their teams, you know, and really consciously developing careers past the mid-level, um, that's, the, that's the second big change I'd like to see in the world. And, um, you know, I would settle for those too. That's perfect. <laughs> and- I would settle for those two, and maybe like for companies to get serious about putting women and ethnic minorities on boards. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll make that number three. Okay. And I think, um, and and what I will say about the first two is there's nothing woman specific about them. Mm-hmm. Nothing whatsoever. I think you help everyone, and when you make the playing field level, um, then the minorities are actually able to thrive and find their appropriate outcome their appropriate destiny um and when you have like this sort of maze where it takes a healthy dose of luck and privilege to to get through then um then you leave a lot of people behind yeah that makes sense and so for women let's say what advice would you give them if they want to break into technology careers but they didn't get a degree in computer science yeah um, at different points in their life let's say right after college maybe their 20s or, or even 30s is it possible to still um start technology careers and be successful I think absolutely it is. I think that um, soft skills, strategic thinking, critical thinking, those are all decisive creativity, um, like good taste, good design sense are decisive advantages to engineers. Like those are all things that 25, 28-year-olds have that sort of new grads may not have had a chance to develop. Um, and so you need to learn what those new grads know, which is the, the technical skills. But, you know, if you ask any engineer what is the hard part of their job, like, you will almost always get an answer that's about design or about interacting with other people mm-hmm. <laughs> and not about technology. So I want to say those skills can be acquired. Now, the interesting question is how to acquire them. Um, we've got this booming cottage industry in boot camps mm-hmm. that uh, I think there's more than 100 of them now mm-hmm. um, that promise to sort of get you into the tech industry. And, you know, I am personally a little bit skeptical about whether a three-month – I don't think a three-month program is going to – um, change your career and your life. Um, I think, uh, I don't think a six month program, maybe you're starting to get in the territory of something that will get you an entry level job, but I don't know if you will be able to, if you have built enough fundamentals in six months to develop your career beyond the entry level. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think you can do the entry level job, but will you be able to grow to mid level or will you hit a wall? I don't know. The jury's out. Okay. Um, for me, I think that software engineering is a high-status, high-pay occupation, like a lawyer or a doctor or, um, you know, a Wall Street trader. Mm-hmm. And, you know, guess what? We have professional schools for 25-year-olds to decide to pursue those jobs, right? Like, you can go to law school. You can go to medical school. And so I think, um, you know, if, I w- if, if you wanted that kind of career in technology, not a, you know, a tech writer or an entry-level job that was going to stay entry-level, if you want to be, you know, the 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 brain surgeon of, you know, software jobs, you know, I would say do the equivalent of going to law school, go get a master's in computer science. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, depending on what your undergrad degree was in, you might need to go, you know, take some, some math classes or other per- prerequisites. But, um, you know, that I think is like entirely doable, right? Like you would never, you wouldn't think, oh gosh, I couldn't possibly go to law school. Well, if you could go to law school, you can go get a master's in CS. Yeah. No, that's great advice. And as an investor now, um, what do you think about women who say, you know, I would love to be an investor, but I, I'm, I know that that takes so much um, expertise in certain domains. And 
what have you seen from people that you've met and their kind of background of knowledge of what makes them successful angel investors like you right now? Um, well, boy, I don't know if, I mean, I'm successful at getting startups to take my checks. We'll see if I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm only a year in. Yeah. Um, so far, they're all doing well. Not good. Um, the feedback loops are, are really slow. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, Have you ever read the the study that says that uh, women will apply for a job when they think they meet all the qualifications yes. and then apply when they think they meet about a third of the qualifications? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I want to say that like being an investor doesn't have any have qualifications really wit written down other than you know a net worth accredited investor qualification, mm -hmm. um, and it, and uh, and so I think a lot of women you know by definition feel like they can't possibly meet all the qualifications because they don't even know what they are, and um, and so I think maybe that's one reason you see so many more men kind of diving into it mm -hmm. because you know it's easier to believe that you check a third of the unknown boxes than all of the unknown boxes, mm -hmm. but um, I think that if you are knowledgeable in a domain um, and you have the ability to size up teams then you can get started. I mean, yeah. I, you, know, you should never angel invest money that you can't afford to lose. Mm -hmm. And you should, um, you know, you should be aware that this is like a super high risk asset class. But yeah. if you have money to experiment with, if you're looking at your portfolio and you have a bunch of things that are safe and earning a little bit and some money that you think, you know, you're willing to put into a higher risk, higher reward asset class, then you should like you owe it to, if you, you manage your portfolio and, and, and think about it that way and you have access to startups, if you have the kind of advice and domain expertise that startups would want, like just start. Why not? You don't have much to lose. I mean, a lot of companies will take investments as small as 10 K, mm -hmm. um, maybe 20 K. And the trick then is meeting great startups, but you can, um, you can start, you can also make small investments, um, one by one on AngelList. Mm -hmm. um, or through, um, other kind of founders organizations. And if you're nervous about getting started on your own, um, these kind of, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, I think founders fund is a really great one. Mm -hmm. Um, let me make sure I'm, I'm name checking the right place. No, I think your answer is totally, that's perfect. And I can uh, completely understand why you'd be successful and what you said about it being one of those things where you just have to believe in yourself and have the money. Do you have any books that you recommend our community should read and why and any tools or services that help you most in your work? Like day-to-day -day kind of productivity. Um, any mm -hmm. like, For example, for me, when I started doing Audible books, I feel like my world opened up. Yeah. Um, well, this is not directly related to angel investing, mm -hmm. but... Um, I recently read Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful book. Um, actually, he also The Checklist Manifesto, which is an earlier book of his, is, is super career relevant and, and useful, and it's about sort of you know, personal productivity, and uh, you, you should read it. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's great. But, but Being Mortal is about um, our lives and, uh, and figuring out what matters to us and how our lives end, uh, how we age, and, and how we deal with end-of-life issues. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think it's somebody, something everybody should read, especially women should read, because we are so often the ones – um, faced with caregiving decisions for our parents. And, um, you know, and I think the, the relevance to career also is that sort of, you know, we're in denial. We don't like to think about end-of-life issues. Um, but if we contemplate them, if we really come to grips with what's important in our lives, then I think that puts a lot of stuff in perspective. Maybe it gives you the courage to take a risk because, you know, um, you don't have infinite time. And yeah. what do you want to accomplish, you know, with those years? Um, and 
and and what's the what's the dent you want to leave in the world? So uh, I thought it was a it was a sad read, but it was a challenging read, um, but it was a meaningful read. Um, tips and tricks. Uh, you know, I'm trying to live a. Um, I think you know managing email and calendaring has been one of my biggest struggles, as a, because I'm just sort of constantly scheduling meetings. Is the life of an angel investor. I'm I'm really enjoying a tool from Baden called Boomerang that lets me set reminders to follow up on emails um, that otherwise drop into the ether. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually trying to keep my inbox really empty and be aggressively sort of archiving emails that I'm done with, um, or boomerang them, or boomeranging them to deal with later. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I've tried a few different CRM tools and productivity tools, like none of which I think is a total, you know, all of which are sort of good enough, but, um, but I'm always interested in sort of learning more. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, that, that's a great list. Uh, anything else you'd like to share on top, on the topic of, uh, woman technology, um, startup world before we end our call? I think I neglected to answer one question you asked at the beginning, which is, what would the world look like if women were really in half the seats? Um, wh- what would that mean for the world? Mm-hmm. And, you know, first of all, I think it would be immense for the software industry because we have a huge supply and demand problem where demand for engineers is about three times the supply. And so doubling the supply would be great mm-hmm. and would be timely. We'd have jobs for them all and 50% more. Mm-hmm. Um, and pouring more capital and more human capital and more talent into the software industry, I think, would let us, you know, not only continue to be an engine for, um, for innovation and for economic prosperity for the country and for the world, you know, I think it's an engine for improving standards of life, for ending poverty, for increasing education, and for a better and happier quality of life for, for everyone. I think this industry can, can do that if we can kind of assemble um, and, and marshal the forces of humanity and, and apply our, our vision and our creativity in that direction. And I'll tell you what, I sure would be a lot happier to imagine my grandchildren living in a world that has been invented by and created by men and women together uh, and not by mostly just men. Um, you know, I think it will be a more holistic world, a more nourishing world, a more creative world. Um, that if all of humanity has a seat at the table and I want to say not just women, I know this is a podcast for women, but, but I got to take this moment on the soapbox to say, you know, this is also a set of problems that are leaving behind ethnic minorities and socioeconomic minorities. And, you know, if, if we, if if this becomes a situation where um, achieving diversity just means, you know, privileged elite women now take their seat next to privileged elite men, we haven't really made the change in the world that, um, that we want for our grandchildren. Uh, and so I think it's, it's incumbent on us as we sort of knock down these walls to knock them down, not just for ourselves, but for everybody else. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so enjoyed this call with you. Thank you for taking time. And I think your, your companies you're investing in are very lucky to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm lucky to have them too. Yeah. So it's a, it's a <laughs> beneficial relationship. 